it, understand it, that it would dig deep within us to transform us in a way that brings you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Genesis in chapter 2. I want to read verses 18 to 25. Genesis 2, verses 18 to 25. Hear the word of God. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He shall be called, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I want to do something this morning that's a bit unusual for me, that I don't usually do this, but I'm going to do it, and I want to therefore tell you why and to share with you some of my own personal cautions uh, in, in doing so. I'm going to preach this morning on the definition of marriage. Most specifically, I'm going to preach this morning about for whom marriage is, or if you want to be less grammatically correct, who marriage is for. That is, I want to speak about this issue of same gender, if we can call it marriage. It's unusual for me to do this because I don't normally speak on issues, especially issues that we're going to vote on soon. I normally try to stay away from those for a number of reasons. Uh, number one is, frankly, the sphere of politics is not my calling. My sphere of calling is the church. Uh, and I understand the overlap between one and the other, that the church is to inform our political views, not the other way around, but the church is to inform our political views, and I, and I see that as my calling to do that, to preach the truth. Uh, I don't view it as my calling to decide every Sunday what you need to hear. That's why I preach the way that I do, through books and passage after passage after passage, and that way I don't get to choose what I preach. It just sort of happens upon us all. I get to make a choice about once or maybe twice, uh, given the particular year, uh, on what uh, I'm going to take up next, but, but, but it really happens upon us, and we trust that that's God's leading to us, so we deal with all of these things, and we trust in the course of that that we're informed about our lives, including uh, our political life. So I don't like to preach about things that are happening even at the moment. I trust that God will inform us along and along uh, in all of those things. And I also understand that Christians can differ on various, especially policy issues. We may have the same goal, but we might still differ on what the political uh, solution to that ought to be. And so whether taxes ought to be raised or lowered, or Social Security changed, or a particular war fought, or affirmative action used to promote equality, uh, Christians can disagree on those particular politics. And that's not for me to share with you what I think we ought to do about those things, if indeed I do have thoughts on any of those, even myself. So that's not what I try to do. I try to preach the truth and that informs your life and you as with me struggle in the course of society and how to apply that 
particularly, especially when it comes to voting. But obviously, I'm going to take a little bit of a turn today and talk about something that uh, is, uh, is upon us. And the reason I'm going to do that is that this issue is different than other political issues because it's first and foremost not a political issue. It's a spiritual one. It's a biblical one. God has already, already established the definition of marriage. It's not negotiable. It's his. And we refer to this definition of marriage as a creation ordinance. That is to say, it occurred before the fall. It even occurred before the institution of Israel. It occurred before the institution, as we understand it, at least as, as the church. Uh, it occurred before Genesis chapter 3. It occurred in the midst of creation. Uh, and thus it's binding upon all people. And so we, as everything obviously in the scripture is, but most especially as we consider this, uh, it falls under that category of a creation ordinance that, that's for all people. So we need to take a look at to take a look at it along those lines. And of course then there is this whole notion of providence. I just so happened to be ending one thing and have an opportunity to begin the next. And so I had to look at that as well and say, okay, God, here I have a week. I can either start something new and get into what I'm going to get into, whatever that may be. Uh, I don't know yet. But um, here I have a week, so maybe in God's providence, in someone even as stubborn as I, uh, that I should consider this. Other Christian leaders have made statements, not that I'm a Christian leader, but some Christian leaders in the community have made statements that have been wrong. And therefore, we mustn't be misled as well by that. So I will speak uh, on this particular issue uh, this morning. The good thing, of course, is that I could preach about this any time because it is in the scripture. If I happen to be going through Genesis and I happen upon the passage which I've read, then I would preach what I'm going to preach today. I would do that if it were 100 years before now or 200 years before now or 400 years before now, which is really my comfort century. Uh, <laughs> or be it 100 years from now if the Lord tarries. So in that sense, we're not going to say anything today that uh, wouldn't be said on any given Sunday, depending on the text. So this isn't new stuff. This isn't anything you haven't heard before. I trust that today you'll go, oh, yes, this is an application of the gospel. This is precisely the logic of the gospel. This is precisely how we always think, and this is how we think about everything. This isn't just how we think about sexuality. It's not how we think about heterosexuality or marriage or homosexuality or any of that. This is how we think about everything. It's just simply an application of that. It falls out of that, like it or not. And so uh, I trust that it will come across as that. I have some concerns, however, as I do this, that I want to lay out for you. Number one is this. That some of you are here with particular needs today, and you came to church with the great hope of being filled with a message that perhaps wasn't about this. Ah, that's why I don't do topical sermons. I'd rather trust the providence of God passage after passage and and see how that falls out. And many of you know how that falls out, right where we need it to fall. To you, I say uh, that still this is God's word. Thus, you will be blessed. Uh, and I think blessed, again, by the application of the gospel. Because the real questions which underlie this are the same questions of life that we struggle with at every turn. And that is, is God's word trustworthy? Who really does define our lives? Is God's love real? Does he care for us really? Is his wisdom wisdom that will bring me delight or bring me 
dissatisfaction in the context of my life. Same issues. Um, so God is here. Plus, I, I struggled a bit by thinking, should we end a sermon on this issue with communion? And then I, I was struck by one of my own sentences, which I give to young pastors, and I always tell them this. If you can't end a sermon at the communion table, it wasn't a Christian sermon. And so, that will be the test, won't it? And for those who came, and this isn't your issue, at least this morning, you'll meet Jesus. Not only through his word, but at his table. God will be with you. But not only that, uh, I share uh, this concern with you that, that I don't want to come across as holier and thou. One of the great problems with this issue and some other political issues is that once an issue that's biblical enters this political uh, sphere, we stop crying over it and we begin to raise our fists. You see, really this issue should move us to tears, not to yelling. But yet, just because of the nature of political rallies that then deal with biblical issues, it appears as if Christians are mad at other people over such an issue. And, and I, I trust that that won't be the case, that you won't think I'm angry with anybody over this issue other than my own heart. And that you won't think that I think that we or I are better than anyone else who has a different practice. It isn't a matter of better or not. The truth is, as believers, as I've shared with you before, to become a Christian, we admit that we're all wrong about everything. And that we need God utterly to inform our lives. So this isn't a matter of me being right or our church being right and someone else being wrong. It's a matter of the fact that we've all admitted in the context of Grace EPC, I hope, that we're all wrong. We're all wrong in the area of marriage. We're all wrong in the area of sexuality. And we need for God to define that for us. And unless he does, we'll continue to be wrong. And so we've turned our trust from our wrongness to submit to his rightness. And that's the gospel, you see. So it isn't about one group of people being right and one group of people being wrong. It's really about who defines us. It's really about, about the gospel. It's really about God. So none of us can stand up. I've shared with you before that left to my own devices, the best I can merit for myself before God is his eternal condemnation. So I come to you without any particular expertise other than I trust his word, his revelation. Also, I have to admit, it's difficult in preaching a sermon like this, and I've shared this before, especially when I talk about sensitive issues in people's lives, because this is more than a political issue in many of your lives. Uh, you know people. You may be a person who struggles with his or her own sexuality. And you know the pain of that. You know the struggle of that. You know how hard that is. It may be that you have a son or a daughter who struggles in such a way, or a husband, or a wife, or a father, or a mother, or a friend. So this isn't just a political issue. It's not just something you go to the polls and vote about. It isn't even just a view that you hold in the context of your own Christian life, but you know the struggle of this. And so it's hard for me in standing and just laying out truth in what it may appear to be a very objective fashion for me to provide any pastoral sensitivity in the midst of that. So, so I want you today to like me as I share this. And by that I mean I want you to give me the benefit of the doubt. I want you to understand the position that I'm in 
And I want you to, to say, I bet if I were sitting in his office, as so many people have done over the years, and talked about these issues of sexual struggle, that I bet if I were sitting there in his office, he would weep with me if that's what God needed, if God desired for our time together. And he would share with me in a very personal, sensitive way. So please give me that. Don't leave here going, oh, he's just this preacher guy. All right? I may have, may have to bend a bit to get there with me, but, but please, it's really hard. And I don't want you to leave here thinking this is how we define marriage or what we think about such an issue is the biggest issue at Grace EPC. It's an application of the biggest issue at Grace EPC. That is, it's an application of who God is. It's an application of who we are before him. It's an application of who is trustworthy. It's an application of who defines us. It's an application of our own hearts and our own sinfulness. It's an application of our own need before God. It's an application of the gospel. And it's just one. And if you're troubled, this is the first time, or maybe the second time in 15 years, I've talked about this issue. So it can't be that big as an isolated issue. But I talk about the gospel every week. Because that's the issue. I talk about Christ every week. That's the issue. This is an application. Okay, are we on the same page? All right. I feel better. I don't know if you do, but I feel much better now. All right. So, first point, really, is this whole issue of authority. This whole issue of who defines us, what defines us. And so, we come as believers, as Christians... We come to the passage, to the text, and we say that the Bible is our authority. It's our authority. As Caleb was praying, he made the confession, God, your ways aren't our ways. Your thoughts aren't our thoughts. Therefore, God must reveal his ways, his thoughts to us. They do not, at least at this moment in time since Genesis chapter 3, since the fall, they do not come naturally to us. And so, God, we, we, we need you to reveal yourself to us. So we read things in the scripture like, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We read in the scripture words like this, these words are not idle words for you, these words are your life. We read in the scripture that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for every area of life, for correction, for reproof, for understanding doctrine, so that we might be equipped for every good work. We read in the scripture that no prophecy has been, uh, originates with human beings, but is a revelation from God that is given, indeed, as men are carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so we trust that the scripture is uh, God's word to us. And you see what that means then, is that he's the one who defines us. He's the one who is our creator, He is our authority. He's the one we trust. In fact, even as we come to the scripture and we find in Genesis chapter 1 this this understanding of creation, what that implies for us is that God owns us. That he is the creator. He has made us. We are not independent from him. We are not autonomous. We are not free in that sense. We are created beings. We can't add a day to our life. We can't add a hair to our head. We, we can't do any of that. 
apart from God. He, he is the one who, who owns us. And we understand that. You know, people in, uh, who, who are inventors invent things and thus they get a patent for what they've invented so that they get to be the ones who determine how that thing is used. If you write a song or a, or a book, you have a copyright, so you get to be the one to determine how that is used because you, in a sense, made it. That's yours, and God has made us. He has patent rights over us. He has copyrights over us. Uh, he's the one who's made us. He's the one who defines how we're to be used, who we are, what we're to do. And that definition comes to us from the Scripture itself, God's revelation to us. And so... So it's God that we're to obey. It's God that we're to submit to. And as I've said a zillion times, I hope you understand this at least, whether or not you use it in your own shorthand way of understanding your life, but it's God who defines us. I don't wake up in the morning and say, well, let me define who I'm going to be today. He's the creator. He has made me. He's the one who defines me. I go to him and say, who am I? You tell me. And he's the one who directs me. I say, well, how am I going to get there being who you've made me to be? And not only that, because he is a loving creator, then I should delight in him, that is, find my full satisfaction in how he defines me and where he directs my paths. So that's where we'll be beginning. The scripture is our authority. From it, we understand who we are to be. So that's why I read this particular passage in Genesis, because this is really, in a sense, all that we need on this particular issue. God gives us two creation accounts. One creation, two accounts. Chapter 1 in Genesis gives us a, a broad overview and emphasizes, if we talk about human beings, the equality of men and women under God, before God, each, both, made in the image of God to reflect Him and to take dominion over the earth. The equality of human beings before God. Genesis chapter 2 goes into more detail and emphasizes the complementarity of men and women to each other, how the complement is made. And, and I read this particular passage in, uh, beginning with verse uh, 18, and, and what we see there is that Adam was created first, and God looked and said, it's not good for a man to be alone. That is, he was unique among all creation. He was the only one like him. There wasn't any other human being there. God made animals in the midst of all that as well. And he parades all the animals before... I just think this is the most hilarious scene. Uh, he parades all the animals in front of Adam, and you get this sense that Adam's scratching his head going, that won't work. Well, that's a giraffe. Uh, you know, that won't work. That's a lion. That won't work. That's a rabbit. Uh, you know, I, you just nothing's like me, God. I'll give them names, but I'm not going to give them my name. Because none of them is like me. And so God then forms out of him, not separate from him, but out from him, one that Adam then looks at and says, that's like me. That's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That's a woman. I'm a man. And thus he says, yes, that, that's for me. And so then we read in verse 24, therefore... That is because God has made her to be for him. God has made her to be, as it says in verse 18, uh, a helper fit for him. That is a helper who corresponds to him. That God's going to do that. Therefore, because of all that, and because he did it, because she's bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh, uh, that a man would leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become 
one flesh. She says, she is my flesh, and yet we have to become one flesh. John Stott, uh, Anglican theologian pastor, puts it like this. He says, this is not a union of alien persons who do not belong to one another and can't appropriately become one flesh. On the contrary, it's the union of two persons who were originally one because they came from him. They came from the one man. He says, on the contrary, it's the union of two persons who were originally one, were then separated from each other, and now, in the sexual encounter of marriage, come together again. That's how closely they correspond. That's how closely they fit. She from him, now together, because they were made for each, made for each other. Um, this is that one flesh relationship, one man, one woman. And to be really honest with you, this is all we need. This is all we need to define marriage. God said, this is how it is. Here's a man, here's a woman. They are to, the man is to leave his father and mother in this sort of public procession away from his family of origin. A man should leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, uh, cleave to each other, be united to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. That's marriage. That's how God did it. That's how God understands this relationship. So, so the question is, what's the big deal? I mean, why is there any problem if that's it? Well, because Genesis chapter 3 follows Genesis chapter 2. And you know what happened in Genesis chapter 3. We've been through this a zillion times. It's amazing as I begin to lay out a sermon how I have to go back in my own mind to Genesis chapter 3. Because that's the reason for all of this. It's, it's when sin entered into the race. And the key thing here for us to understand, the reason we can't trust our own passions, the reason we can't trust our own inclinations, the reason we can't trust our own thoughts, that is why these must come revealed to us, how we're to think and how we're to feel and how we're to be inclined to act and how we're to act. The reason that we need this revelation is because of what happens in Genesis chapter 3 when everything gets turned on its ear. You remember the sin... Let me put it this way. You remember the temptation put to Adam and Eve. You can be like God, knowing good and evil. I've gone through, we've gone through this zillions of times. What happened in the midst of that sin is that Adam and Eve determined that they would be the ones to decide what was good and evil. That is, they would put themselves into the place of God. And once human beings put themselves in the place of God to define what is good and evil, we define it wrongly. We place ourselves in a position we shouldn't be, which is as God. And then everything revolves around us. And thus, everything in the midst of us is corrupt and corrupted, and polluted, and thus can't be trusted. And so you see, at that point in time, then everything that God had established, especially in this whole notion of marriage, got turned on its ear. That rather than uh, lifelong monogamy between a man, one man, and one woman, rather than that making complete sense and saying, yes, that's the way it ought to be, then all of a sudden that made no sense, all the way from the heart on out. And so we see what the Bible refers to as these sins of the flesh, sins of this sinful nature. There are all kinds of sins of the flesh, some sexual, some not. But in the context of these sins of the flesh, we find things like 
lust. Adultery. In fact, as God lays out his Ten Commandments, two of them deal directly with such marriage-slash-sexual sins. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That is, if you're married, you shouldn't have sex with someone else. Number ten, you should not cover your neighbor's wife. I assume there's some... This also means for a wife, you should not covet your neighbor's husband. That is, you shouldn't lust for them, desire them to be your very own, because they're not. And God has established one woman, one man, so that shouldn't be. So in the midst of all this, we, we see various sins entering the race. The Bible uses an expression, uh, sexual immorality. And that little phrase, sexual immorality, uh, can be used for every immoral inclination or behavior of sexual intimacy outside of marriage. Do you understand that we're all sexual sinners? This isn't a matter of homosexuality versus heterosexuality, at least in its opening statements. None of us, if left to our own devices, without the revelation of God, just on the basis of our own inclinations, would come up with this plan that says, one woman, one man. It simply isn't in us in that extent. Because you see, sin enters the heart, pollutes the heart, corrupts the heart. And so Jesus could put it like this, Matthew chapter 15. and verse 19. He says, from out of the heart come evil thoughts... Murder, I'll give you a second to find that so you make sure I'm not lying to you. Matthew 15, verse 9. You should never trust a preacher. That's just always, you, should, you know, everything that he says, just keep turning those pages till you find where he stole it. People tell me that was a good sermon, Bill, and I said, you know, I have really, really good material. Matthew 15, verse 19. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, that is, from who you really are. That's the problem. Genesis chapter 3, who we really are changed. And changed for the worse. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. Now notice Jesus uses both of those words, so they're similar, that is, they're both sins in the area of sexuality, but they're different, at least, as he sees them. Sometimes this word sexual immorality includes all of sexual immorality that would be adultery, homosexuality, any, any sexual intimacy apart from marriage. Sometimes it simply means uh, what we would call premarital or sex between two people who aren't married. Because here he contrasts it or lists it along with adultery, which suggests that you're married, but being sexually intimate with someone who isn't your spouse. For other hard come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with... Oh, that's not important. It's a very... It's, it's part of the heart. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. The Apostle Paul lists it like this. He says, Now the works of the flesh are sexual immorality, the works of the flesh, that is our sinful nature, 
The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries and dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like that. And you may say, well, Bill, why don't you preach on all of those? And I say, okay, I will. Just not today, but, but they're just in there too. If that's your issue, deal with it. Bless you, but deal with it. Um, I'm just not there today. We'll get there. Um, and then in Ephesians chapter 3, he puts it very helpfully and tellingly like this. I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. Notice how he puts it. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. So notice how he lists sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. He's putting all those together. Sexual immorality, sexual intimacy, that's different than, not defined by, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. One man, one woman. Impurity, ah, again, we could define this since this is Paul's theme in these particular verses. Impurity could be anything that makes us impure before God, especially in the context of our sexual sin. Covetousness, again, covetousness being this overwhelming uh, sense of desire that causes us uh, to do and to follow that inclination, that passion. We talk about it often in the context of materialism and greed, but obviously it's also used here and in the Tenth Commandment in the context of sexuality, covetousness, an overwhelming, overwhelming desire to follow a sinful inclination to get what isn't yours. But sexuality, uh, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place but let there be thanksgiving. Now that's an interesting thing, isn't it? What is the antidote to sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness? Being thankful. You go, whoa. Being thankful for what? Being thankful for how God has defined you. For being thankful for how God directs you. You see... Our sin can be defined and explained a number of different ways, but one way our sin is defined like this, as being dissatisfied with God. Being dissatisfied with how God says things really are and should be. And so when we're thankful, we're saying to God, thank you for you. Thankful, thank you for how you've defined me. Thank you for how you're directing me. I, I, that's really good. I just want to say thanks. Thanks for, for marriage. Thanks for how you've established sexual intimacy. One man, one woman. But see, when we're living differently than that, when our lives are characterized by sexual immorality, we're saying, God, I'm not thankful. I'm not grateful for how you've established life. How you've defined us to be. I'm not thankful for that. When we're living a life of impurity sexually, we're saying to God, I'm not thankful for how, how you've made me to be. And we're living a life of covetousness, that is, we're coveting sexually that which God hasn't given to us, that is, our particular wife or our particular husband. And then we're saying, I'm not very thankful for the way you've set this up, God. And so he says, now be thankful. But then he goes on like this, verse 5. 
For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Wow. How is this all idolatry? Well, idolatry means that someone other than God is defining you, that someone other than God is directing you, that you're thankful for someone other, to, other than God as to how you're being defined and directed. That's idolatry. So if you're looking at the society to define you and direct you and you delight in that, that's idolatry. And if you're looking at your own passions to define you and say that I should be able to pursue my own sexual inclinations, that's idolatry. Because God has said, no, that isn't the way you're to be. If you allow your covetousness, this overwhelming passion to have that which isn't yours, if you allow that to define you and direct you, that's your idol, that's your God. And that's idolatry. And notice verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now please understand, in that whole passage, I could talk about homosexuality. But Paul doesn't name it there particularly. He's just simply talking about sexual immorality. Every sexual inclination and practice that's contrary to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, one man, one woman, is sexual immorality. And you go, well, then who's not guilty of that? If that includes lust especially, which it does, by the way. So, so anybody want to jump up now and yell at anybody? Anybody have a stone to cast? No. We understand that we all need our lives to be informed and convicted by, by the Scripture in every area and this as well. And so that's where we come. That's how we come in this humble sort of way. And now, I could, I don't have time, but I could run through a number of passages that speak to homosexuality uh, explicitly, we could read Leviticus chapter 18. We could read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, which I will in a little bit. We could read 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, we could read uh, Romans in chapter 1. So let's just do that one. Romans in chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, uh, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and foolish. their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. That's just a description of our depravity, of our sin, that we've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for something else. Romans chapter 3 says, For all have sinned and come short of his glory. Rather than basking in the greatness of God, rather than desiring to f reflect him, 
rather than wanting to honor him with our obedience. We've exchanged all that for other gods who are not only lesser, but not gods at all. One of those gods is our own hearts, our own passions, our own inclinations. And if we apply that in this whole realm of marriage and sexuality, it's these passions, sinful passions, that drive us. And so we've said, oh, that's really God. I need to follow those. God said, no, that's not it. You need to follow me. So then verse 24, therefore, that is because of all that, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. And he goes on to talk about a particular impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. That is, they worshipped themselves, their own passions. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. They had dishonorable passions, so God said, go with them. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So in the midst of all that, I hope you see these things. Number one, we're not God. Number two, God is God. Number three, he does define us. And he does that in the context of scripture and he's been very explicit in the context of marriage saying, here's the definition, one man, one woman, united together for a lifetime. Everything else apart from that is sin, whether in the area of heterosexuality or homosexuality or any kind of sexual expression. Sexual intimacy. Everything else is sin. But some say to me then that uh, sexual sexual intimacy Sexual intimacy outside of marriage makes me happy. Whether that's in the context of heterosexual sin or homosexual sin. I have to understand, I'm an old guy. I've talked to a lot of people about a lot of things over the years. And I've had this said to me many, many times, sincerely, by people I care for and respect and love. And they're looking at me saying, this really makes me happy. And my response to that is, I understand that in the sense that I have sin that for the moment makes me happy too. But I also know that's a very dangerous place to be. Anytime you're able to make the expression, I know this is wrong, but you're in a very dangerous place because you're saying, I'm not thankful to God for how he has made things to really be. I'm going to go my own way. And that's a great danger. And so if you find yourself happy by things that don't make God happy, that simply isn't good. And I understand that. I don't sit in judgment over somebody who tells me that sin makes them happy. I understand that. And it scares me for the both of us. And thus we need to repent and say to God, you're right, I'm wrong. This should not make me happy. Please work in me. And I claim the blood of Christ in the context of this area of my life that for the moment makes me happy, but I know shouldn't. And I need him and depend upon him 
Change me. Transform me. Proof again I need your grace. Proof again I'm a sinner. Proof again that your ways aren't my ways. My thoughts aren't your thoughts. Please make your ways my ways. Your thoughts my thoughts. Please transform me. Please change me. That's not a good place to be uh, for any of us. Others have said to me, but I've always been like this, and I understand that too. <laughs> That's the very nature of sin. That's the very nature of sin in the context of the heart. That's who we, we are and have been. But by the transforming power of Christ, we aren't that anymore, aren't to be that anymore. I understand. I understand sinful inclinations that have been with you and been with me my, your whole life. I understand that. But again, just I don't define my life. I am not the measure of my life. God defines my life. And if I say, God, this is the way you've made me, he will say, no, it isn't. He didn't make us to be sinners. He created us in righteousness and holiness. We sinned. And there's great mystery there. I don't pretend to be able to explain to you why all that happened and all that sort of thing. I can just tell you it did. But the truth of the matter is, God didn't create us to be sinful. And so we can't go to him and say, well, God, you know, you've just made me an angry person. <laughs> Therefore, I just shot that guy. He would say, don't blame that on me. Thank you very much. Now, if you'll trust my son, I'll blame it on him. I'll put the guilt upon him. But you must come and say, God, that was wrong. That isn't who you've desired, at least, to make me to be. And the same thing in the area of sexuality. See, the problem with sin is it feels so natural. Whether it's heterosexual sin or homosexual sin, when those who come to talk to me struggle with homosexuality and they say, this, this must be the way I've been born. This is, just feels so natural to me. I say, I understand that. I understand that it feels like this is the way you were born because I, I was born with, sexual, uh, uh, with sinful inclinations too. And sexual passions that are sinful, that feel very natural to me. So that isn't the definition of it either. God said that's still wrong. That's deviant. That's whether it's heterosexual sin or homosexual sin. So he says, repent of that sin and come to me. And people say, well, shouldn't I accept people with views that are different than mine? Well, of course. As a human being, we accept them. We understand that. We know they're different. We were different than we once than we are now at one point in time. That isn't really the issue. That's just the smokescreen. I don't kick anybody out who comes to my office and wants to talk about anything. And everybody's welcome to come to church and worship. God commands every human being, every person in Lawrence, Kansas, should be in church this morning. And I, I wish they were, if they didn't go someplace else, I wish they were all here. not a matter of acceptance or not acceptance the question is doesn't God accept us the way that we are and of course the answer is no if he could accept us the way that we are he wouldn't have needed to send Jesus he would have just accepted us but the truth of the matter is because of our sin he can't accept us he can't accept us and so he sent Jesus so that he could accept us and so he accepts us as we are in Christ, that wonderful Billy Graham hymn, Just As I Am, doesn't mean that God accepts us just as we are, because the hymn, the point of the hymn, the hymn writer had it right. Just as I am, I come to the Lamb. So we come to Christ as we are, repenting of our sin. 
And he takes us to the Father as he is. That's the gospel. That's the good news. So it isn't a matter of God accepting me the way that I am or not accepting me the way that I am. Of course he can't. We, we can't presume that God would just sort of take me as I am. He condemns us as we are. But we come to him in Christ. And since he's condemned us in Christ, then he can receive us as himself. Others say, but aren't all God's children? And therefore, shouldn't they be able to express themselves as they are? Two answers. Number one is, no, we're not all God's children. (sighs) To those who received him and believed in his name, to them he became, he gave the right, the authority to be called children of God. We're all in God's family in the sense that he created us all, but to be able to call God Father means that we are his child, thus we've come to him through his son. First John, chapter, I mean John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. And secondly, of course, God doesn't say, go ahead and express yourself. No, he didn't say that to me. He doesn't say that to you. If he said that to you and me, by this afternoon, life would be horrible. I hope you don't say everything that crosses your mind about me. (laughs) And I hope you don't act on everything that you think about me. And I, you, that's that's called self-control. Even godliness, that's good. You recognize some of those thoughts, that's not right. We recognize some of our inclinations, those aren't right. And so, no, we don't, we don't get to express these things just because that's the way that we are. God is transforming who we are. Again, again, that's the gospel. And so for us, the bottom line is this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You might not identify with one or more of those, but I bet I could find you there. Verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, the truth is that marriage can't be defined any other way than the way that God defined it. One man, one woman for a lifetime. That's it. Not negotiable. It's his deal. His definition. You can vote against that. You can vote for that. But the truth is it doesn't change. That's it. If you want to inherit the kingdom of God, each one of us needs to repent of our wrongness, our wrong thinking, our wrong inclinations, our wrong behaviors in the area of sexuality, in the areas of marriage. And we need to repent of that, come to Christ, be washed, submit to God. That's the gospel. That's the gospel whether we're talking about sexuality, that's the gospel whether we're talking about anger, that's the gospel whether we're talking about idolatry, that's the gospel whether we're talking about theft, that's the gospel whether we're talking about unkind words, that's the gospel. No matter what we're talking about, that's the gospel. And here's why. Verse 19. Or do you know, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? 
You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. And again, that's the point, isn't it? The point is, and the point that sinners rebel. This one, who owns me? To whom do I belong? To whom do I submit? People don't understand that when they say they believe in God, what they're saying is he owns me. I belong to him. I've told you this before, but one of the most profound statements was made to me a hundred years ago now. I don't know how, 30 years ago now. Now, it's going to be like 25, a long time ago. Back when my hair was the other color. Uh, Karen and I were sharing uh, with a couple close to us in the neighborhood. It was late at night, as those things often got in those days. And I explained the gospel in a way that made me proud. (laughs) I thought, I've never explained it this well before. I can't believe he's not getting it. Uh, It was so right. And it was so grace-infused. And I turned to this guy and I said, trust Christ, it's free. This, it's a free gift of God. And he said to me the most profound words before rejecting the gospel. He said to me the most profound words. He said, I understand it, but I know this. If I accept the gift, I belong to the giver. And you see, the sinful inclination ultimately in us is, I don't want to belong to anybody. But when we become a Christian, you see, when the work of the Holy Spirit works in us in such a way to transform our hearts, we see our wrongness about everything, marriage and sexuality included, and we say, I've been bought with a price. I no longer belong to myself. It isn't what I think about me, it's what God thinks about me. It isn't how I define me, it's how he defines me. It isn't how I direct me, it's how he directs me. And if I find myself not delighting in how he defines and directs me, I'm in trouble. Because I need to be thankful genuinely from the heart and say, this God is good. How you've worked, what you've said, what your will is, is good. And it's my heart's desire to submit to it. Thus, We were bought on that night that Jesus took this bread and he broke it and he said to his disciples, this is my body which is given to you. And in the same way, on that night Jesus took the cup and after giving thanks he gave this to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. In essence he was saying, all of your passions, all of your inclinations, all of your understanding Naturally speaking, apart from me, is wrong. And it's damnable. But I'll take it. So that all who believe in me could be forgiven. I will buy you, but understand this. That if you accept this gift, you belong to me. Thus your whole life is to be defined by me. Your whole life is to be directed by me. And you should be thankful. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
I do pray that this truth informs our whole lives. And I pray, God, that you would work in us individually, you would work in us collectively. As believers in Christ, that we could show the truth of this. That we could show your wisdom and our thankfulness for it. Not only how we vote, but, Father, most especially how we live. And I pray that we would honor you with our lives, with our sexual passions, with our decisions, and for those who are married with their marriages. That we would honor you and show you to be great and you to be wise. That you are the one who is truth and we are the liars. Forgive us our sins. Lord Jesus, meet us here. And may we vote not with hands lifted, not with fists raised, but with tears. Take this bread, I pray, this juice as well. Use it in such a way, God, that enables us to by faith meet with Jesus, the one who's bought us. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember, this isn't the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord, and he invites to it all who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy. You understand your wrongness, his rightness. And you understand your need for him. Do you believe and depend upon him as he's offered in the gospel? And that you desire, therefore, to live a life that becomes a follower of Christ that isn't perfect. It's forgiven. And seeking and searching and praying and living by his definition, his direction, and your delight in him. Let me invite these two sections down the aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Dip a piece of bread in the, in the cup and eat it and think this if it's helpful to you. I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. Please come. To us, I pray, all the benefits that are ours, those who belong to you. May we be grateful. May our lives reflect it. Please receive our offering this morning. You are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you of our Sunday school classes that are going to start almost a couple of minutes ago. Please share my apologies to your teachers. Um, the response to the benediction is this one. Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. Now when you say, Jesus is Lord, you're saying that he is the one who bought me. He is the one who owns me. He is the one I belong to. He's the one who defines, directs me. In him I find my great joy. That's what hallelujah means. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and who present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.